The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I am Mike Snoonian. And we are continuing our theme of dementia in horror. Yeah, our first episode on this theme was The Taking of Deborah Logan, so make sure to check that out if you haven't already. And today, we are going to talk about a little bit more of a recent film, 2020's Relic. So, what the fuck? Get your tickets? I don't know what the hell any of this What the hell? <laughs> I'm kind of having this little war with myself about how much to leave into the opening of this, just so people know what what we're really like um, yeah so <laughs> programs here so get, get your, your programs tickets. i don't here. know what that meant i was uh, who knows get your tickets to our podcast episode yep there you go and i guess just pretend that was either more clever or more funny listeners and then, <laughs> and then we'll carry on but before we talk about Relic, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen Relic or it's been a while. And just to clarify again, this is the 2020 film, not the one with the giant monster in the Field Museum, although that That's is also the a Relic. Movie. That the Relic, yes. And it's not one of those Wolverine situations where it's like no. Wolverine and Wolverine part the. It's different movies. But this is, so yeah, this is Relic. Here's your spoiler warning and also your mascara alert because this is a bit of a sad one one so yeah. it is all right let's did get I watch sad. the right one <clears throat> did you watch the right one i uh, hope so you didn't it, think this was sad I, okay we'll save that for later okay <laughs> dear god <laughs> already we're off feelings okay. check this was a lab a riot <laughs> yeah very uh jubilant film. okay right. let's <laughs> synopsis water overflows from a bathtub and makes its way down some stairs then around the corner and straight to the feet of an elderly woman who stands nude looking at her Christmas tree. Once She's again, hashtag. Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm sorry, carry on. Once again, hashtag horror films hate nude old women. It's a thing. <laughs> it is, yep. Mm-hmm. Kay and her daughter Sam are driving to Grandma Edna's house in the Australian countryside. The neighbors haven't seen Edna in a couple of days, and she's on the elderly and forgetful side. When they arrive, she's not at the house. So Kay reports her mother missing to the police. It's been a few weeks since they talked. In the house, Sam notices a lock on the outside of a closet and a mysterious spot of mold on the closet wall. The next day, a search and rescue party comb the forest next to the house, but no luck. Later that night, Sam is smoking on the porch when she sees neighbor Jamie, a young man with Down syndrome. He's helping look for Edna, but won't come inside. His dad doesn't like him coming over anymore. Apparently, Gran called Kay a few weeks ago, saying she was afraid someone was coming into the house. Doors were left open, chairs were moved. Kay assumed it was just her mother being forgetful. While wearing one of her Gran's magnificent sweaters, 
Sam finds a note in the pocket that says a single, wildly ominous phrase, don't follow it. Yeah, just don't. Yeah. Uh, Sam and Kay hear a knock behind the mantle. It's coming from a spot of mold on the wall, which extends upward into a growing stain. Kay dreams about a creepy house in the woods with the same door as her mom's house, covered in the same mold. There's an old man inside, shirtless, hashtag I guess they hate nude old men, too, <laughs> and a shriveled up, decayed body on the ground. It opens its eyes. The <laughs> next morning, yes, all nude old men. Yeah, I know. I've tried to do a yes, all men one, actually, and I couldn't make it work. (laughs) Good times. Hashtag humor's hard sometimes, you know. (laughs) You're telling me. Um, Okay, I don't don't know what it means. The next morning, someone puts on the tea kettle. It's Gran. She's back. Other than being confused and dirty, she seems fine, but she won't or can't tell them where she's been. She's got a bruise on her chest that she doesn't remember, but seems mostly okay. The doctor says she should probably not be by herself for a little bit. Kay finds blood on her mother's nightgown and post-it notes everywhere. She demands to know what happened, but gets nothing. Meanwhile, Sam and Gran share bonding time, with Gran giving her a family heirloom ring. That evening, Edna looks at the bruise on her chest, except it looks less like a bruise and more like the mold growing on the walls. Kay finds a sketchbook with an illustration of the creepy house she sees in her dreams. She tells Sam that her great-grandfather built it. His mind wasn't all there at the end, and maybe he wasn't properly cared for. Later that night, Edna walks toward the closet door, whispering. A dark human shape is waiting behind her in the hallway. She gets back in bed but seems scared. She asks Kay to check under the bed. Kay obliges and sees a dark shape. Is it moving? A falling book breaks the spell. The next day, Kay tours a retirement community. It's clean and seemingly decent enough, but Kay is having doubts. She sobs in her car. Sam asks her gran if she'd like her to move in with her, here at her house. Edna doesn't love the idea. She sees the ring she gave Sam and accuses her of stealing it, going as far as to grab her granddaughter's hand and pull at it with surprising strength. Now Edna is carving a candle and whispering to herself. When Sam notices that she's cut her hand, Edna gets upset, smashing her candle and kicking her granddaughter out of her room. Sam goes to talk to the neighbors to find out what the deal is with Jamie. Turns out Edna and Jamie were playing hide-and-seek. Jamie went into a closet, I think we can guess which one, and Edna locked him inside for hours. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> they're keeping their distance. <laughs> I'm going to go right now. Yeah, I can have the... I wonder what that sounded like, the noises I just made. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. Okay. Kay follows Edna into the garden, where she discovers her mother eating the pages of a photo album, as one does. Mm -hmm. She stops her from chowing down, but then Edna starts burying the album in a patch of dirt. She says they might be safe here, her photos, her memories, away from the house. She regrets installing the doors from Grandpa's cabin, even though that stained glass is fabulous. Mm Mm-hmm. She tells Kay that he, whoever he is, must have been there, waiting all this time, until she was weak enough, alone enough. She wants to bury herself in the ground so it can't get at her. I'm losing everything, she tells her daughter, and I formally start sobbing. Mm -hmm. Kay asks her to move in with her at her house back in Melbourne, and Edna says yes. It seems to be a breakthrough moment. While Grandma's away, Sam goes to check out the closet. She sees the scratch marks on the door that Jamie left. Then something catches her eye. It's another hallway behind the clothes and junk piles. 
Sam walks in, finding further piles of junk, more post-its. My mother has green eyes. My name is Edna. The hallway keeps going, and Sam keeps walking. It winds around improbably, speckled with mold. The detritus of a long life scattered in boxes and furniture and heaps. I don't know. I just really wanted to say detritus like that. I loved that. (laughs) Detritus. That gave Uh, me an ASMR. (laughs) No, <laughs> I'll record. I'll record myself talking like that for as long as you so want because they're very enjoyable for me. To try to sum along, okay. <laughs> Finally, Sam is like, "Fuck this!" But when she turns around, the closet is gone. There's only more hallways, doors, and junk and black mold in the shape of a person. Then she freaks out an appropriate amount and bangs <laughs> on the walls, crying for her mother from somewhere within the belly of the house. Kay can't find Sam. She's getting worried. Edna isn't talking. Then suddenly she pees on the floor and Kay ushers her mother into the bathroom to get cleaned up. Sam is still trapped in the walls. Now the hallways are getting smaller and more crooked. Kay goes to check on her mom, but the, <laughs> I wrote the word mom because of the Australian. Oh, yeah. Uh, so then it started coming out weird. Kay goes to check on her mom, but the bathroom door is locked. Edna is stabbing herself right in the chest bruise as the bath overflows. Kay tries to beat down the bathroom door, but suddenly her mom walks out, eyes crazed. Then the power goes out. Great! (laughs) Especially for Sam, who is running out of crawl space, now lit only by her phone, the walls literally closing in. She kicks through a spot of mold into the ceiling above her, emerging into yet another hallway. Kay follows her mother into the evil closet and then into the same horrible passageway. There she finds Edna, crouched on the floor, stabbing herself in the face. I don't know you, she says to Kay and rushes toward her, her leg breaking. Sam finds a pipe and uses it to bust through the walls. Finally, she realizes she's at the mantelpiece in the living room. But just as she's breaking through, she hears her mom yelling. They reunite, there's sobbing hugs, etc., etc. But watch out, Edna is chasing them now, Kay says, and yep, there she is, creepy crawling around the corner like a nightmare wraith. Mother and daughter hurry through the hole in the wall. Sam makes it through to the living room, but Edna grabs Kay and tries to pull her back in. Finally, Kay makes it, but Edna emerges, relentless, a filthy, shriveled version of Edna. She attacks Sam, and Kay beats her with a pipe. The pair start booking it toward the exit, but Edna calls Kay's name. She hands her a post-it note that says, I am love? Kay tells Sam that she can't leave her. She locks Sam out of the house and carries Edna upstairs to her bedroom. She strokes her hair. She takes her clothes off and sees her rotted skin. Kay begins to peel this off as well. Her hair is coming out in clumps. Kay peels her entire mom until there's only the dark human form underneath, looking like a walking corpse or maybe the figure we saw in the closet. Sam got back inside and she's peering in the room. Kay stares at what's left of her mother. Kay lays Edna down in bed and holds her hand. Sam lays on the bed behind Kay and sees a spot of mold spreading on her mother's back. Relic. Relic. A film about detritus. 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 Okay, sorry. That's a fun word. That definitely peaked while I was (laughs) seeing it on my waveform, because I'm screaming. It's definitely (laughs) clipped, yeah. Detritus. Okay. That's okay. I'll drop it in. Detritus. Okay, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) So now let's do a feelings check, and this is when we share our first experience with the film and unpack how we feel when we watch it. And Mike, would you care to kick us off? Sure. So. There's a lot of things to appreciate from a storytelling and performance standpoint. Uh, Scream 3's Emily Mortimer is really fantastic oh, that- in this movie. 
Yep. That's like when George Clooney won an Oscar and they played his Batman Forever music. <laughs> <laughs> As they should. Yep. Uh, and it would be bat and that's actually Batman and Robin. That's right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So, Thank you, because we would get angry emails. We would get angry nerd boys that would come at us. If an angry nerd boy comes at me, just try try it and see what happens. Yeah, unless you're a hot angry nerd boy, and then, well, I'm down. Sorry, Fair carry enough. on. All right, let's go. I like hot nerds. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it really is this poignant tale of mental health and how one's mind can deteriorate as we age. And really the burden that family can place on us when our roles are swapped or reversed. It's far better crafted and handles the subject matter with a lot more sensitivity than the taking of Deborah Logan does. Yeah. That being said, it's almost impossible to actually see anything that occurs in this movie. Like, I think I texted both of you today mm -hmm. and I'm like, I, is this, I, it looks like the movie was lit with pen lights. It was really frustrating. I had to switch like three times where I was watching the movie. And I've said before, like, I've got a pretty nice setup. Mm -hmm. And I found like it was so poorly lit that I was getting pulled out of the movie over and over again and getting really frustrated by it. Mm. The parts of the closet scene are a really good example. Like when you were doing the synopsis and like, oh, they see a dark figure in the hall i'm like how can one tell that's supposed to be a dark figure it's just this <laughs> splooge of black somewhere and there was an and i also like felt at times the movie does drag uh the last act is incredible and it's tense and it's scary and it hits a lot of the buttons of things that really frighten me mm -hmm. especially the claustrophobia but <sighs> in terms of when i first saw this it was definitely during the pandemic days and I remember there were movies like this, The Lodge, and later on, like Saint Maud, were like three indie horror movies that got rave reviews, Saint Maud in particular, but they came out like during the height of the pandemic. And I think my brain was like, no, thank you. Like these are far too serious and, you know, far too heady and far too bleak mm -hmm. for me to really enjoy them. Like, give me. Give me Adam Sandler movies right now. Like, that is what my brain... Give me 90 slashers. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what my brain needed. I thought watching it again, I'm like, well, maybe I'll feel different, you know, on a rewatch. And I'm just like, man, this is dark. It's, it's so dark. And I felt like it's like, it's important or serious or dare I use the phrase, like, elevated. <laughs> and I kind of feel like with movies, like, like with the A24 model, studios are taking the long the wrong lessons away from those movies like you can make a very well crafted horror movie that's smart has a lot to say and this goes above and beyond the norm mm -hmm. but it's still at some point should be at least a little bit entertaining and i i'd actually i'll maybe talk about this later on but like i kind of wonder how this movie might have started versus where it maybe ended up you mean the story or yeah. like in development yeah, that. Mm. But, I mean, there's no de denying the craft here. It's mm -hmm. pre very precise. Mm -hmm. Laura, what about you? So, yeah, I did also watch this on Video On Demand shortly after the Panini started. <laughs> I remember it was one of those that I'd been looking forward to because it was on all those lists of, like, great horror movies upcoming, and then it was, like, we're in a Panini. So I was happy <laughs> when it came out on On Demand. The trapped in the walls sequence, like 
scares me incredibly a lot because I'm very claustrophobic and my nightmares frequently take the form of getting lost and winding indoor spaces that obey their own non-Euclidean geometry. Sorry, I'm on a <laughs> kick tonight. Uh, I but it. I mean, like, really, it's like it's literally like like some one of my like most recurring nightmare themes, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just like when I first saw this, I was like, oh, uh, even this time I felt like I needed to run screaming around the block to shake it off. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree that it's very darkly shot and difficult to see at times. It doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you, Mike. But um, I think I think mainly because in spots, I do think it's effective. Uh, it just, you know, it just don't watch it during the day. You're going to need a completely dark room to see this adequately. And I was like watching it this morning. So, you know, yeah, it is definitely hard to see at points. I was watching it to compensate with my laptop, like very close to my face, mm-hmm. uh, but which was a, just not a, f- a fun way to experience because it's very unsettling to me, but not in a fun way. Although I will say, despite that, like not a lot happens narratively, it did keep me engaged. I didn't feel like it dragged, but um, I did feel very like freaked out and and sad, like freaked mm-hmm. out in a sad way. I think it may, you know, maybe it would have worked better as a short film, perhaps because it's, I mean, to me, its themes are so tight and its vision is so clear that it feels like, like, a, you know, especially comparing this to having recently watched Deborah Logan and our conversation about it was like, it starts with this really clear analogy for dementia. And then it's like, but there's a serial killer guy and she's a snake and like, you know, and all mm-hmm. this, like, so the themes kind of got a little frayed around the edges toward the end of the film. Whereas this one, like, to me, it's just so clear in its thinking and it's an exploration of dementia and fear of what lies inside your own genes and your family, which you can't ever escape no matter what you do. And as an extended metaphor for that, it worked for me quite well. It is very, very bleak, though. It's not like there's just like no like spark of humor in this movie, especially the way that it ends. It's like you are, you know, you're trapped, like your, your fate is sealed, you know, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure if I love that takeaway. but. It, I do feel like as like a nightmare and tapping into those fears, like it it is airtight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched this the first time I reviewed it when I was writing for Consequence and, but I reviewed it a little bit late in the cycle. Like there was already a lot of hype about it. And so I kind of was in the middle of the hype had already been out, but it hadn't been released yet. So I, and that lots of times really stresses me out. So I remember I didn't love it the first time I watched it, although I think I reviewed it pretty well because I do think it is, it's well done in a lot of ways. But I was like, you know, I don't know if I was really looking forward to watching it again, but I enjoyed it a lot better the second time. Like I found myself really, really liking it this time. I, I wonder if I was just kind of, in the mood for something really dark, like physically dark and um, emotionally dark as well. But I think the what I liked about this one compared to Deborah Logan when we're looking at these themes is I feel like this one is willing to let the narrative reality go a little more. Like this becomes a feeling movie, especially the last stretch of it. And I like the kind of commitment to go after that feeling and not necessarily worry so much about the narrative lining up. And I think that's what I was looking for the first time I watched it. And I was like, yeah, but why don't we ever find out what X was? And this time I think I I didn't really care because I knew it wasn't going to resolve itself. Mm -hmm. And so I think I just kind of allowed myself to enjoy it. Um, There are parts that 
are were genuinely terrifying. Like, I think I've just really been craving a, a dark movie where somebody might be behind you and you can't really tell. And this exactly fit that bill. Um, so it was really nice to kind of watch it and just kind of let that darkness wash over me, you know. I hear what you're saying, though, and I think this one just happened to really work for me yesterday. But, like, mm -hmm. I remember another one that came out around this time was She Dies Tomorrow, which I think is good, but it just, for some reason, did not connect with me. I was like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. But they have a lot of similar kind of DNA, even though they're very different films. But this one, I think it just worked for me because it was it just was what I was needing at the time. And I think... I'm glad that we're talking about this after Deborah Logan because I think I had kind of clarified some of the like lurking fear I was having when I was watching that movie. And this time, because a lot of this is like fear of what it's like for caregivers, you know, which is something I, I think we're going to talk about. But I also think it is a fear of like what happens when it's you also. And I think it is just, it's more intentional. And I think that that intention, like I said, they were like more willing to let the narrative go. So I think they could uh, the filmmaker who's I probably should have looked up, but could really kind of embrace that intention a little more. I think Deborah Logan just really kind of tied themselves to the narrative. You know, it's never silly. Right. Yeah, I think I think with Deborah Logan, I think the idea is like we can use this as a device to tell a scary movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And. This felt very much like I can use this as a device to kind of work through a lot of feelings I'm having. Yeah, it felt very, very personal and yeah. intimate. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't know much about the filmmaker either, other than it's a woman. Yeah, um, Natalie which, Erica you know, James, we should say. Yes, and Christian it, White also wrote. Sorry. Yes, I, who I think is an author. I remembered reading some little blurblet about that. Um, but I, it, that's why I think it resonated with me is that it, it just felt like a meditative and personal movie and yeah it's not like there's nothing um there's no like glimmers of fun in it but mm -mm. as and I, th I actually think I liked it more the second time too because I, I remember being frustrated with it at points during the first time I watched it and this time I since you I knew what it was what I was getting into because I think it had been so hyped up and I was like I'm gonna get spooky scared and it's mm. gonna be like oh cool uh, and like that's not what it was. And I think a lot of that stuff comes like the elevated horror and all this. And it, a lot of it comes down to like the way movies are marketed or the discourse that surrounds them. Whereas mm -hmm. like, I think to me, this was just like for get, putting aside all the, the, you know, the discussions around it, it just feels like a very, very personal movie. Yeah. Um. So yeah. for that reason, like, and it's so well-crafted and well-performed that I'm like, I gotta, I gotta hand it to them, you know? Yeah. I feel like a lot of these movies are, they don't necessarily, in the early stages, start out as horror movies. But when you're sitting down with a producer or you're sitting down with a team of investors and you realize, what would I be able to make my return on investment back on? You can like shift things subtly in order to make it a supernatural movie or somewhat of a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And then these like very personal but small budget movies become genre films and i think that speaks more to the lack of studios taking chances on anything besides superhero and horror movies right now i i think that's possible but as someone who has like spent most of their life trying to use horror narratives to convey deeply personal 
mental health things that I'm working through. Like that's how I write and how I approach it. But I, I very intentionally say I'm going to write this as a horror story because to me, these things, I've always experienced them as horrific. So I don't want to make that assumption about this. Like, I just think that that's not fair. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of positing a theory, which is yeah, kind of what we do sometimes sure. when we talk no, no, about no. The movies. Like, I, I think of this, I think of like St. Nut Mod, which is another movie about caregiving, mm-hmm. which is barely a horror movie but it just it struck me although i know that the the director like she has work with lee one all and things like upgrade mm-hmm. and i know that she oh, that has done rules. like a lot of like mm-hmm. it does it really does it's good if you uh, haven't seen it check it out <laughs> and it and she has done like supernatural horror short films um but you know i mean there is like a fair amount of cynicism sometimes that goes into producing something for wide release or, or or a larger release yes of course and i'm not i'm not arguing that i just think in in this particular instance like i wouldn't i i to me it's it felt like such a clear idea like using the house as a as a way to get you in like into the feeling of having dementia or feeling like your life is decaying while you're still alive like you mm-hmm. know um i don't see how it could have been conceptualized as anything but horror you know like i just mm-hmm. don't i can see that with maybe saint maud mm-hmm. um which i loved though i think it's i mean i, I love religious fanaticism yep. being explored as a theme so and i love the lodge also i mean it, but i agree very bleak movies yeah um i felt like that because i felt like nothing remotely horrific happens until about the hour and 10 minute mark and then it does become a full-on horror movie like it is very much uh i mean you get like the nightmare sequence with Mm. the grandfather but again it's it's just a it that didn't seem like it would be out of place in a non-horror movie either like it's not until it makes that large tonal shift in the last act Mm -hmm. where it's very much like a character driven drama and a very good one but one that maybe less people would see, let alone kind of talk about. Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't just, dis- I just don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. Like the mark perspective of like, let's market this as horror because it's going to get a wider viewership. That definitely happens. I'm mm-hmm. not disagreeing with that. I just, I didn't get that vibe from this movie. Like I, you know, and so it's just like, to me, I guess it's, it's very similar to the kind of thing I would make and I would try to sit down and write. So I, it very much like resonated with me from that perspective of like, and I think that they do a really good job before they hit that tonal shift building dread like it's a Mm -hmm. dreadful dreadful movie Mm -hmm. like it fills you with like and i think that atmosphere is and it's definitely like on the cusp it's more similar more similar in my head to like a david lynch film than it is to like us has more in common with that than like a slasher film but i think that's what i like about horrors that could be so encompassing of like subgenres. to me this is more on the side of psychological thriller or like mind bender Mm-hmm. but you know i don't i just don't want to make that assumption about a filmmaker because it's it's all that's also you know <laughs> it could be cynical on either side of that well one thing that i do want to say that i loved about this is that it is about three generations of women but it does oh you know what i'm sorry i just looked at um she she worked on upgrade interesting 
which is oh, these people almost all know each other. <laughs> uh, they really must. Yeah. Um. Anyway, sorry. What I got distracted because upgrade is so good. But yeah, I love that it is about three generations of women, but it's not about that. Like that is not the point of the movie. It is just those are the characters in this movie. And that is the lens through which the story is told. But like I could maybe make a stretch that this is like a, a matriarchy movie, but it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like humans telling a human story, but it is female characters which I just absolutely love Mm -hmm. yeah so you know I think this is one I think that is just a really um it's I feel like it's powerful in a lot of ways on both sides of like how you respond to it and I think a lot of times movies that are very personal are gonna hit everybody in specific ways because you know, it taps into a really like specific thing that one person might be looking for and then just is not something and someone else would be interested in. Like how I feel, I hate to feel like I'm shitting on She Dies Tomorrow, but I know a lot of people like really enjoyed that one and I, it just missed me, you know, I was like, this yeah. is just not quite for me. But that's and, why we do, that's why we do these feelings. Exactly. Check, I, I want to separate what is a personal reaction from what we're about to discuss. So, right. Like, I, you know, and for like this one work, there's plenty of movies that don't work for me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, and that's so part of why we do that. Yeah. Just like, mm-hmm. like you said, that's part of why. So we can say what we think, but then like, and that's part of why I love doing the feelings check is that mm-hmm. it separates me from how I feel about it as much as I ever can do that. As much anything. as we can. It's some compartmentalization as a right. tactic. <laughs> yeah. I will say like when this movie works, it is akin to like the best stuff that let's say a Mike Flanagan does. I agree. Like, yeah. The way that, yeah. a, a, the way that Flanagan is, is very able to meld the personal mm-hmm. with the horrific. So when this movie is working, it works really well. And I would yeah. like to see more by her. Like if she has something else come out, like, mm-hmm. you know, I would, I would watch it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I wonder what this would feel like if it were part of an anthology, you know, like we were saying, like just kind of condensed so that you get the the bulk of it is that more horrific final act, you know? Yeah. And I it makes me wonder if the payoff would be as good if there's not the build up to it. But also like what you were saying, Mike, like there are stretches where if you are not invested in that emotional buildup, then you're just like, what's going on you're here? You're bored. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it just, be, it would be interesting, you know, and you know, it's, this is the movie we have. So, it, you know, it's kind of can't really know, yeah. but you know, yeah. anyways, um, well, let's uh, dig into our mental health topic. Um, And in our episode on the taking of Deborah Logan, Mike gave us a fantastic general understanding of dementia. And we talked specifically about Alzheimer's, although we did talk about dementia um, more broadly also. So make sure to check that episode out if you have not already. And Mike, I think you said this week we're going to talk a little more about treatment and caregiving, right? Yeah, mostly caregiving. Uh, Mostly some of the burdens that fall on caregivers and then like a super super brief like foray into possible treatment or per and, per and or prevention so as you might guess like one of the primary reasons someone would care for a family member with alzheimer's or dementia is an economical one treating and caring for persons with dementia is extremely costly and some of the data i was looking up was showing that like adult day programs can run up to $1,500 a month and in-home care could run 
more than three times that amount. Um, because of that expense, because of the lack of adequate healthcare coverage and a lack uh, of access to services, families will often decide to try to care for family members on their own. Uh, and as you might expect, like the burden of caregiving often falls on women. Uh, there were some estimates put the number around like 10 million family members in the United States alone, providing at least some level of caregiving for a loved one uh, with dementia. So there's a number of stressors that are going to come along with giving this sort of care, and those are going to include psychological, emotional, physical, and uh, social um, stressors, as well as economic ones as well, of course. You have a lot of challenges that comes with being, being the primary caregiver of someone with Alzheimer's. Number one, you know, study after study just talks about how difficult it is for someone to watch an, someone they love deteriorate in front of their eyes very slowly. The picture that you know, they would describe, like the picture they had of a person in their head, basically warping day after day to the point where they become almost unrecognizable. The strength, the energy, the vivaciousness mm -hmm. that a person once possessed can slowly fade away as the disease takes hold or grows more debilitating. I actually have a quote here from an article, uh, The Role of Grief in Dementia. Uh, this is from a study that talked about how grief caring for someone with dementia often parallels that of what one might experience when the person actually dies. Mm -hmm. So one of the members of the study talking about a uh, their husband said, I grieve the things that have become impossible for my husband to do. I sit and wait for the next change to happen. Sometimes the changes happen quickly, whereas other times I seriously think that he's starting to come back. My life has become a nightmare. I am always waiting for the bottom to drop. And that is why I grieve. I want my life back. Mm. Uh, so it's just this really hard thing to watch. Being the caregiver for a family member, unlike, say, being like a nursing aide or a nurse or just someone who goes into the practice of caring for these persons, oh. you take, you're taking on like an extra mm -hmm. emotional burden because mm -hmm. you don't have that step removed where you're like, well, this is my job and at you know, such and such a time I can clock out and then leave it. You know, when it's a family member, like this is that divide uh, gets removed completely at that point. Uh, it's not just a job or a server service. Mm -hmm. It's like you have a vested interest or a skin in the game. Not to say that persons who, you know, treat others with dementia or Alzheimer's as a job, like not to say that they don't form attachments or, grief for their patients i don't want to suggest that yeah but you know it is something different it's not that yeah because you don't like i'm thinking about the scene where they're all three brushing their teeth together and even though nothing really happens there but like you don't have like the memory of your mother teaching you to brush her teeth you right. know or like Which, your entire life you know that scene weirds me out really do people do that like do people i see like <laughs> brushing one's teeth is like really personal Oh, really? Um, like to the degree of same degree as like using the toilet and not wanting someone to come in. Huh. So oh. do people like in relationships actually brush their teeth next to one another? Like, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do that. Some people do. Certainly. I, I, I also don't 
and I would rather not. I think there's mm-hmm. some things that just destroy intimacy and that's, mm-hmm. you know, or mm-hmm. like attraction. Yes. And that's one of the, yeah. But like, I mean, but also like in a family thing, yeah, there, I mean, there were plenty of times where like my mom and I were getting ready at the same time and like mm-hmm. brushed our teeth next to each other. But yeah, it's not something I can say I ever enjoyed. No. I would rather have that be alone time. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, oh, Corey and I brush our teeth together all the time. Of course, now we have different sinks. When we had the same sink, no. That mm-hmm. was too close, but yeah, it's mm. not even a sink thing. Really, it's just like the standing next to someone and doing that. Yeah, mm. I don't know what it is, but that's that's my little. <laughs> just to but just to double back before we get too oh far yeah down the, the, the rabbit hole of teeth are gross <laughs> just shared shared mouth stuff. I just would I was gonna say like even if you were a, a nurse practitioner or a traveling nurse who did this kind of stuff and it was then your parent who you were caregiving for. I think it would still be a completely different emotional experience. Mm-hmm. There's oh, just, yeah. there. I mean, I don't even think, I mean, it's just, it's sort of self-explanatory on some level. It's yeah. just like, you know, like when my, not to bring this back to my dad, but like my dad was very physically sick and like grotesquely ill at the end. And mm-hmm. I'm not a squeamish person. And I don't think that that would have bothered me nearly as much if it was someone else, but like seeing your dad, you know, my mm-hmm. dad reduced that is it's just, it's yes. like a something, it's on a different level, you know, yeah. it's like, it's something yeah. in your brain is just like, this should not be happening. I should not be seeing this. Yeah. And it's, it's completely devastating. Yeah. I am very fortunate that my mom, even at 75, like she is as sharp as she was when I was younger, but mm-hmm. going back and like looking at pictures of childhood and watching my mom age, like I have a picture in my mind of my mom in her 30s and 40s mm-hmm. you know like not the picture i have of her now or not how i see her now mm-hmm. uh, and again my mom is still like super active and very mentally alert so i'm very fortunate mm-hmm. in that way but there's still like it's disconcerting at times to see that it is and it's like i think if you are somebody who works like in an assisted living home or you are used to seeing kind of the trajectory of these things like i'm thinking about that quote like the things that break down and i wonder why this toothbrushing thing is sticking in my head but you're used to seeing people kind of lose the ability to brush teeth for themselves like it's not so much of a shock when that happens when you're caring for someone the way it would be for like you to see your mother or your father like lose this ability and then have to figure it out and you also have strategies for when that happens if you are a professional caregiver that somebody who is has never encountered this is not going to have you know it's like when people who have been working in daycare centers have babies versus people who have never been around children have babies you know it's just you learn everything new for the first time when it is somebody that is your own like your own family you know That said, also, this is going to, I don't know, sometimes I think it's easier to do the harder things when it is somebody that you're not related to also. Like, I I have this memory of my friend trying, not being able to put her cat in the cat carrier because the cat was, like, freaking out. And because it's not my cat, I was able to be a little more forceful. And I didn't hurt the cat at all. But, like, it didn't bother me as much that this cat was so upset. And I think if, like, sometimes like cleaning a wound or doing something that is going to harm somebody that you love is really, really hard in a mm. way that it wouldn't be for somebody who is not grown, oh, seeing yeah. this person every day of their life, you know? When I was in grad school, my advisor put it this way, like her partner at the time talked to a client 
And like the client, I think was like, well, what do you think of me? Like when I'm not in session and his answer was, I don't. And that really took the person aback. He's like, look, Mm -hmm. when you're here, like the hour a week that I'm with you, you are the only source. You get a hundred percent of my undivided attention. Mm -hmm. Nothing else in the world matters, but you right now. However, the minute you leave the room, you're no longer my responsibility. I can depersonalize it. I can put it away because I need to do that in order to function. Right. And I think, yeah. And I think it becomes harder, much harder, almost impossible for some if you're like a family member giving care because you mm-hmm. have that vested interest. Yeah. You, you can't, I, don't, I can't imagine how you compartmentalize it. I mean, even my mom had like a fairly minor surgery six or seven years ago. And I, I took care of her for like a week and a half afterward and had to change like her bandages and like, take you know, drain the little plug, surgical plug and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know? And like, I, it wasn't because of how it being like blood that doesn't bother, but like seeing my mom and she was in a good deal of pain, like, and, you know, and just seeing your mom and I just couldn't do it. I was yeah. like, you know, at some point I, I did it for like a day or two. And then we started I, taking her to this urgent care center to have them do it because I was just like, I was so afraid to hurt her. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just like, and like the feeling I cannot describe. It's like, I've never felt anything like that before. Just like a deep wrenching pain when she's in pain, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, like I actually like weird surgical stuff and I'll, you know, that shit, it doesn't bother me at all. Like, you know, I, I, but like when it's your own parent, like mm-hmm. forget about it. So one of the other stressors that can come up is like the physical stress from caring for someone. Just the fact that like it's exhausting in in all the exertion that comes with doing not only taking care of yourself and your own physical needs, but cooking and cleaning for somebody else, Mm -hmm. having to dress someone, having to bathe them. Laura, to your point, like you said, having to like dress wounds Mm -hmm. and the the mental and physical effort that goes into being like extra careful so as to not hurt them or damage them in some way there's also having to deal with like the difficult and sometimes problematic behaviors that a person with dementia might experience like they could present as like a physical harm to themselves or a harm to somebody else and it's something we see you know in this movie mm-hmm. um having to help somebody move, maybe having to carry a person mm-hmm. if they're just can't get from point A to point B. All of those take a real physical toll on a person. There are family conflicts as well. And they can be as simple as like basically resentments from one sibling or one member of a family to another. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be arguments over how the care or how the treatment should be handled what the division of labor looks like. So all of these different family or whether or not like the the parent should be placed somewhere. Um, One of the secondary issues that was uh, that came up in a number of the articles was the loss of social socialization that a person may feel like all of a sudden their life is no longer their own. It's kind of like when like Jen, you mentioned like having a baby. Mm It's kind of like when you're a new parent, all of a sudden the things you used to be able to do, you no longer can Mm because your life revolves around this tiny being that needs all of your care and love. And there's Mm -hmm. even a line in the movie, Sam says to Kay, hey, you know, this is the way it should be. Like when you're 
when you're a baby, they change your nappies. And then when they're older, you change theirs. Mm -hmm. So you lose out on your social group, your friend group. You may not be able to go to work like you were able to. All of these things fall by the wayside. And that loss of socialization can have some severe mental health effects. It's not a surprise that caregivers tend to suffer higher levels of depression and anxiety. Yeah. And like when it is a baby, you know that that baby is going to grow and eventually be able to do not need as much care. Like it, it mm -hmm. does go away and there's a pretty predictable timeline for it. But when yeah. it is an elderly parent, like it, it feels indefinite. And the end of that is lots of times their death. So it's like, it's, it, you're not looking forward to this burden being gone. You know, it's just, it's just a mind fuck. Yeah. And no. there's probably, I mean, I, I don't know this firsthand, but like, I mean, I've certainly heard from people I know and, you know, anecdotally, like you, the amount of guilt you feel because you want the burden mm -hmm. gone and then, you know, having those thoughts, like, why don't you just die already? You know, like yeah. those kind of, you know, like it's, it's inevitable that you'll, that thought will cross your mind at some point if you've sacrificed so much and it's such a hard thing to, to deal with. But then, you know, so it just is a, just a further mind fuck. Yeah. Oh. It's like that phrase, at least they're not in pain anymore. I feel like lots of times it's not just the person. Yep. You know? No. Yes. <laughs> so this is a, a quote from a study I found called The Role of Grief in Dementia Caregiving. And it talks about how the kind of grief that one might experience in caring for someone with a dementia can mirror that of someone actually dying. And the quote goes on to suggest that the caregiver grief which is defined as the caregiver's emotional, cognitive, and behavioral reactions to the recognition of personally significant loss, is an ever-present stressor in caring for a person with dementia. They argue that it is a true grief that is relatively indistinguishable from post-death grief in personal impact and meaning. Further, these authors suggest that grief in reaction to the many losses that the caregivers face may be an essential factor that is related to, but potentially distinct from, the symptoms of stress typically focused on in the caregiver literature. It is the thesis of this review that the magnitude of stress, although distributed over a longer time interval, is equal or greater to the stress one experiences in the post-death grieving. Mm. And it talks about things in the article, like the person pulling away from their loved ones, from perceiving the significant loss by having to change what their normal role was within the family. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as they watch a person deteriorate as they care for them, kind of like depersonalizing that person in that relationship. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's almost like a protective kind of thing. And we'll make I sure. I would to say, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I will it might yeah. not even be a conscious choice to do that. It's, it's very much something, you know, you, I think we all have our point at which we shut down and do that as a as a, a, cop, mm -hmm. a coping mechanism. Because it's impossible not to think of it being, and I think this is something the film does really well, this is happening, this is going to happen to you too. Especially if it's mm -hmm. like a spouse caring for another spouse, you know? You're like, yeah. it's not too distant off that, you know, you might be suffering the same thing. And I want to make sure we uh, link that article to the role of grief in dementia caregiving, I believe yeah. is what you said it's called, right? Sweet. Yep. Yes. 
Yeah, and this was from an article called Family Caregivers of People with Dementia, mm -hmm. and it talks about like different categories of caregivers. So it, it, the article points out, as difficult as it is for anybody to care for somebody like this, that there are like ethnic minorities and persons from indigenous groups that are less likely to have access to services uh, or have less likely to have access to mental health services mm -hmm. or to see a clinician that maybe understands the cultural demands as well. Other factors could include like a lack of understanding about dementia from these groups, language or communication barriers, and then just a difference in, in cultural experience between our Western culture and theirs. Mm -hmm. All of these things throw up more barriers for um, persons of color, for indigenous groups. Um, it mentioned like Latino groups in particular have a really hard time mm. um, with this. And mm -hmm. other groups like persons of queer persuasion mm -hmm. often find that like the, the caregiver finds that their needs are not being met by health services, that they have mm -hmm. more obstacles that are thrown in front of them mm -hmm. uh, in their like domestic partnership or marriage is seen as less than compared to your typical heterosexual um, couple as well. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I just, I do want to give a, a shout out to this episode of another podcast that's really worth listening to regarding pretty much everything you've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. It's that same guy I mentioned last time, the Dr. Jason Carlowish, but he was a guest on Brene Brown's podcast, um, Unlocking Us. Mm. So this episode was from April of 2021 called The Problem of Alzheimer's. Um, I just think it's, he's, his, part of his whole thing is focusing on caregivers. And mm -hmm. so in that interview, he gets into like the diminishment of autonomy and how that affects both the, the cared for and the caregiver and specifically what caretakers can do to help, you know, be cared for or how you can help caretakers that you may know. And, and his, and I, I looked up the name of his, um, it's called the Penn P-E-N-N, -N, like Pennsylvania, uh, memory center. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they're doing a lot of really, really interesting work there and, and work uh, with caregivers that they say, you know, really, so speak, I mean, obviously these barriers to these kind of treatments exist, but it's um, that that they seem to be doing good work there. So it's worth looking into if you know someone um, that's going through this. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll make sure to link all of the articles and sites that we're yep. talking about too. Yeah. And it's also like none of this happens in a vacuum. So like if you're thinking about the general course of life, like somebody who's dealing with an elderly parent would also be odds are dealing with a child, you know, so caregiving on both ends of that. And it's just, it becomes mm -hmm. just a lot. Yeah. So lastly, and very briefly, um, what are, some potential like treatments or some things that can kind of ward off or stave off dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, again, there's no cure for it. Um, there is a lot of cautious optimism that within a, within a decade, we may be able to find a permanent treatment for it. But there are things one can do right now to help like lessen the impact. Very basic stuff like eat a healthy, balanced diet with a lot of lean protein chicken, fish, plant-based proteins, beans, lots of fruit, lots of leafy green vegetables. Um, don't smoke, or if you are a smoker, stop doing it. Limit your alcohol consumption. Um, be active, like exercise, move around, uh, and then engage your brain and be social. There's a lot of research that needs to be done in this area, but there have been some studies of adults 
65 or older that have come to the conclusion or believe that engaging in like mentally stimulating activities like puzzles or brain training games like these things can help slow down memory loss they can improve your reasoning as you age and help maintain the speed of decision making mm-hmm. again it's nothing that they're like a one to one like cause and effect but uh there is some thought in those areas and Laura I know that you know you mentioned like this is an area that your dad kind of was an expert in so if there's anything you want to add please take it away no no I mean his research was in very like cellular level stuff with mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease and like the degradation you know so he was like slicing up rat brains and like and and trying to get grant funding for i mean if i tried to i can't i'm not even smart enough to say out loud the words that were like involved in all his papers Mm -hmm. um he was truly like an like more on the engineering side of it Mm -hmm. um i will say though that i've i've read again i can't cite my sources here but i know it came up in that carlo-ish interview that um cardiovascular exercise is probably the number one thing because Mm -hmm. i think he put it very simply in that it gets oxygen flowing to your brain Mm -hmm. um and and so anything that is you know that that is probably like the number one thing you can do to when you're younger or you know to to help keep your brain active is and and i hate hearing that because i hate cardio Mm. i hate it Um, but you know it is true so that's why if nothing else walk you know get get your heart pumping and your blood flowing it feels like you know your all of our bodies are going to eventually break down and not be alive anymore and so the most you can do i know this feels oversimplified but the, the things you can do to take care of your body i think help you know yep I don't know. Sound mind and a healthy body. Yep. <laughs> and eat apples every day. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, well, let's let's kind of transition over to the movie. Thank you for all of that research, Mike. That's really interesting and um, depressing, but also important <laughs> to talk about. Like, this is the thing that I think is really hard for a lot of people to talk about because we all kind of, it like awakens this looming fear that we know is going to, you know, yeah, come to us all. But, you know, um, and so maybe because we were kind of talking about it, I wanted to mention like the conversation about what to do with Edna um, and what like giving sending her to live in an independent living place or like I think they call it a retirement place. Um, and I like the like it seems like a perfectly nice place that she's um touring it seems probably on the upper scale side of most like assisted living facilities but i like the way she described it as independent living with the edges taken off and there's a fair amount of privilege in that because i know a lot of places are not going to have the resources to have everyone have their own room or everyone have like i know the place my grandmother was at had like a hair salon or like a place where they could do her hair, you know, and then they had like the ability to take them off site and do things. And she just got really lucky that one, my family was able to afford that for her and that that was available near where we lived. But I know that that is not at all the case for a lot of people, even if it is possible to afford an assisted living place at all you know because like we said it's not like I knew how long I was going to be paying for daycare 
because I knew when my kids were going to get into school, but you don't know, like with an assisted living, it's just a perpetual cost that is going to keep getting greater and greater, you know, and it's, you, it's hard to budget for that, you know? I, I also think that that phrase is kind of a double-edged sword in a way, independent living with the edges taken off, especially for a character like, it was true of this character of Edna and mm-hmm. in Deborah Logan. These are like fiercely independent women mm-hmm. who really value their home and like going from a house of that size and that amount of sprawling autonomy. And like she, Emily Mortimer's character walked in, um, to that room and it was just like a chair and a small bed Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know and I just was like picturing that through the eyes of her mother (laughs) not the eyes of my mother that's a different movie (laughs) that we don't I don't ever want to watch again um but uh you know it's just like it's kind of existentially horrifying in a way even even and and this is one of the better options you know (laughs) it's like Mm -hmm. yeah and I guess that's that's an important thing to mention because I just described it as through the lens of me thinking about putting my loved one there not the lens of me imagining myself living there which is different you know and you don't want to leave your own home but then like Mike I see in your notes it's it's almost taken as a given that Kay is just gonna say hey come live with me or Mm -hmm. I will move in and that and Kay's response that it's complicated is true for all of the reasons that we just talked about you know and it's not just the logistics of okay i would have to like quit my job and move here and find a job here because i still need to pay bills and buy food and i'd have to sell my home and where will my daughter go to school but also just the emotional burden like Mm -hmm. it, it although it's not the focus of the movie it's you know hinted that there are some pretty severe cracks in the foundation of the relationship mm-hmm. between Edna and Kay. I think like Kay's like it figures when Sam says, oh yeah, grandma taught me how to play piano. Like that kind of, there's a note of bitterness there that I mm-hmm. think sums up the relationship so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit with Deborah Logan. Like it would be very easy to be resentful of that parent if there were any stressors or anything that you had that you found like grudges you were holding on to it'd be even Mm -hmm. more difficult to hold on to them Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean yeah I think that's a little more elaborated on in Deborah Logan like the exact why but I like that this movie doesn't elaborate on Mm -hmm. what it is because you can just fill in those gaps with your own experience knowing that there's this tension between them it's like great now I have to take care of you and you were always like a fucking asshole to me Mm -hmm. you know so right it's just it feels it you know yeah and you and you get the sense there's also some strain with Kay and her own daughter too Mm -hmm. you know with Sam and her and that Sam is kind of looking at her like what do you mean you're not just going to take care of her um is almost there's something there too like I felt like Kay felt like Sam was judging her for not being super enthusiastic about uh being a caretaker in that situation And I love the, like, when Sam, like, the trajectory of Sam thinking about moving in with Edna, too, because she's like, oh, yeah, I can just move here. And, I mean, I was looking, like, it's a pretty nice house. The land Mm -hmm. looks really pretty. Like, on the surface, this seems like, oh, yeah, and I'm just working at a bar. Not that that is just working at a bar, but, like, she doesn't have the same kind of career that it's assumed that Kay does. But then as she spends more time with Edna and she starts to see the angry side and kind of the, the difficulty, like, she's like, oh, this is a lot more 
than I thought it was going to be. Like, it's a lot to take on, mm-hmm. you know. It's like a, that escalated quickly. It goes yeah. from like, I'll move in to like, grandma's like trying to pull my finger off. Like, right. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and maybe that is a good transition into talking about um, kind of the signs of dementia that we see with Edna, because while there are some similarities with Deborah Logan, I think it's interesting to see it here. Like, I think her anger is presented in like a less malevolent way than I felt it presented with Deborah. And I found that almost more chilling, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like the the way that I read it is that there were like the hostilities that you were mentioning, Mike, but like that she in the course of her dementia, like the need to hide those, that anger kind of wore down a little bit. So she just was like, get out, you know? I think here what you see with Edna is that what she's most angry about is the loss of her dignity. Mm -hmm. Things that she's asked to do to make sure that she's aware of her faculties the I think when she says the line like I'm losing everything, mm-hmm. there's you know a bit of righteous anger that comes with that because I think you hit it really well, Laura, when you said like this was a fiercely independent person that took a lot of pride in their home and living on the outskirts who also would have known what her grandfather went through or her father mm-hmm. went through. Yes, yes. So she knows where this road is leading, and there's this this real anger that is inward, but then, you know, anger is very much, I use this analogy, anger is like a balloon. Mm-hmm. Eventually, if you don't find a good way to release it, you're going to pop. Mm-hmm. And she takes that anger out on her daughter in particular. Mm-hmm. And yeah, her granddaughter and sometimes too. And I, one of the things that I noticed that I've experienced was that she called Sam K a couple of times, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that was one of the first signs I remember seeing with my grandmother when she called me my mom's name. And I kind of laughed at and I was I didn't laugh at her, but like I was telling my mom and I was like, oh, yeah. And she called me your name. And my mom, I just remember the look on her face when she was like, uh, oh, this means something a lot different than it does mm-hmm. to 15 year old me, you know. But yeah, and I think there is um, there's a real kind of dehumanizing element to this movie that I think um, I almost called her Deborah that Edna goes through that uh, like even there's a point when she says, I'm still your mother. You know, I think it's in the garden when she's eating the pictures. and She's like, no, I want to eat these pictures. Mm-hmm. This is what yeah. makes sense to me right now. Fuck you. I am a grown up. I should be able to do this, you know, They're and that- struggling over the photo album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This movie doesn't make Edna spooky, spooky, scary. No. The first yeah. hour, like, like it does with Deborah Logan. Well, I think like it does at the end, but it almost becomes like I think the scariness there is not so much that of Edna. It is of dealing with Edna's death. You know, it's mm-hmm. like this is what has become of my mother. Like this is like the peeling off of her skin is literally dehumanizing her. You know, it is like peeling off. And you would think that that would freak me out, but I actually kind of got a little bit of a, like. (laughs) um, Well, I was wondering, I was wondering, I was like, oh, is this killing Jen right now because of the skin thing? (laughs) The stabbing parts did, but like the peeling the skin off was almost like a, a, I don't know, like a strangely satisfying 
kind of YouTube well, thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And also at that point, she's clearly not in pain. When she's stabbing herself in the chest, it still looks like it hurts, you uh-huh. know, and it's like very gross. And like once by that point, it's like it is. Let's like t- when you're like exfoliating or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Do a, a self care like Instagram ad for exfoliation and just patch in cl- those clips of those that moment. Mm-hmm. But I love the imagery there, and I think when I think about like letting go of the narrative, like what I was talking about earlier, that is where I really see it because I think that image is so striking, and yes. it really says I think what the filmmaker is trying to say here without us having to worry about like oh is she an alien now like it doesn't invite that kind of scrutiny I don't think you know yeah it's this that's where it gets a little like David Lynchy for me where like the thing you're seeing is just the thing like you don't Mm -hmm. need to try because I think the way people well not all people but many people try to engage with David Lynch is by like cracking the cipher or something it's certainly how I tried to engage with it when I was a teenager it's like what what does this mean? What is going on here? What is this bigger thing that's being revealed here? And I could see someone approaching this movie and being like, "What the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. Is she is she her grandpa now? Like, what is that?" But I right. don't I don't I don't think that's the point at all, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think maybe this is what I was thinking of earlier because we were talking about her in the garden. One of the other things she says is that you know, he was here all along and was waiting until I was weak enough to to get in. And so she's perceiving it as like, almost like she's being possessed or taken over mm-hmm. by the spirit, which I'm assuming is supposed to be her grandfather or the great grandfather that built the cabin, mm-hmm. um, who she saw go through this. But it's really to me read as like, it's inside you all along, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like you inherit these things from your parents. And the, if there is a like a that like a ticking time bomb inside you and then that sort of like Russian nesting doll moment with the three of them at the end, it's like, you know, this you can just picture that there's that little shriveled corpse inside each of them, mm-hmm. and, you know, and that it's just a matter of time, as evidenced by the last shot. You know, mm-hmm. I thought it was like a very poetic visual uh, way to express that idea yeah which again I'm not sure what I like I don't you know because I don't I don't believe that there's like an inevitability to often to inherited conditions like that's it's often so much more complicated than that yeah so, so I think we live with this fear when we actually don't can never really know what like the chances are unless you have like one of those very specific gene mutations or something. So, yeah. so I, it's a very fatalistic way of looking at it, but I think it, it perfectly expresses that fear. Yeah. Well, I read uh, an analysis of this piece that was talking about Huntington's disease, which is a, yeah. Um, yeah. an inherited trait. And I am not, I don't think there's a cure. And th- so the writer was, and I'll see if I can find it to try to link it, but um, he was writing as if like, do I want to know if I have this or not? Uh-huh. You know, there's and a whole there's a whole debate around that because it, it is one of those conditions where like if you know that you have it, like you you just know that you're going to degrade into it. Like there's mm-hmm. no there, there's no treatment. Yeah, and so I think there is a read of this as an inherited condition, but also just as the natural like decomposition of body. Like I love the parallel between the mold growing on the house and the mold growing on her body. You know, I think that's just mm-hmm. a really striking way of making that connection, you know. And Mike, I'm looking at what you have written and you write you wrote peace comes when the, well I don't want to step on it, but I just loved that sure. that so- analysis, yeah. I felt like at the end of this movie, like with Kay, this movie doesn't present Edna as monstrous until the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's for a very brief 
period. And I read that less as Edna being monstrous and more Mm -hmm. the feelings of being overwhelmed Mm -hmm. that Kay and Sam were experiencing and trying to provide care for her. Like they had reached their breaking point Mm -hmm. and say, uh, Kay closing the door on Sam and going back in and carrying her mother to her bedroom. And she doesn't like rip her mother apart, but she very like gently breaks off the pieces that have rotted from her and then she grooms her and like it's like edna's final form is kind of insect-like but -hmm. there's also this really stark beauty to it as Mm -hmm. well and what i found is like Kay had kind of like come to terms with like this is who my mother is now Mm -hmm. and she is not the woman that raised me she's you know not this woman that i may have fought with for years Mm -hmm. um but this is who she is right now but that doesn't mean that she wasn't this person before. She wasn't all of these things before. Mm-hmm. And I felt like there was some acceptance there mm-hmm. that she would be able to kind of come to grips with what happened to her mom. And that's mm-hmm. why I found like her like holding her mother in that form uh, was is sad and bleak. And it is a bleak ending, especially when you get to that last shot, mm-hmm. that there was still like some beauty that comes from acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, the, I can't, like, if Kay had left, she would have just died on the floor right there. You know, like, it's, it's like what we were talking about. I feel like there's a difference in that moment than the decision to have Edna come live in her house. It's like she, she doesn't have anyone else. She needs me in this moment and I can't turn away. And just that, that I am, I love that post it. Just, it breaks my heart because just the way that it is, written also you know which the the post-its in this like I loved just the idea of that and I want to kind of talk about the maze section too but like some of the post-its like my mother's eyes are green and like my name is Mm -hmm. Edna and it and like trying to eat the pictures it's just this like these are things that I know that I don't want to lose and her like acknowledging like these aren't safe with me anymore I have to bury them in the ground because that's where they're safe like my mind is not a safe place for all of this knowledge anymore it's just it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found that to be especially heartbreaking. And I, I love, I mean, wh- one of the things I really do like about this movie is that it never, it just shows, it never tells. There's mm-hmm. zero exposition. And and just seeing those post-it notes in the in the maze, you know, says it all. You know, yeah. like you don't need more than that. She's been writing down things from as as in you know as benign or, or no as banal as take your pills to mm-hmm. as heart shattering as my mother's eyes are green you know mm-hmm. like and that, that at the end of the day all of our memories are just these post-it notes fluttering in the wind you know like mm-hmm. it, it, it just freaks me out you know <laughs> well and so maybe let's talk about the maze because I think the first time I watched this I would like I said I was really trying to make this make narrative sense in a way that I think Deborah Logan kind of falters by getting too fixated on um but I think this this time I watched it and I was like oh okay this is what it feels like to be trapped in your mind like this and I liked that um Kay and Sam are experiencing this too because I imagine if you're living one-on-one with someone 
who is suffering from dementia, it's really easy to start questioning your own logic, you know? Yeah, because it is so innately terrifying. I think, you know, it taps into some primal fear of like getting lost or then like with the, with the, it's kind of like a house of leaves thing where it's shifting around her and the doors are gone behind her. Mm-hmm. And I think that what that does is generates incredible empathy for what it's like to, to be living with this condition. So it's, this movie is generating a lot of empathy, both on the side of the person who is afflicted and the caregiver. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that it's it's just very effective. Like I I find it to be one of the most upsetting sequences for yeah. me personally, and mm-hmm. anything I've ever seen. There's something about, you know, again, it's hard not to relate these things to personal experiences. But like, mm-hmm. well, after my dad died, like going through all of his things, and I was responsible. You know, like I had to go to his apartment and pack everything up and, and, you know, and get it ready. And there's just that, that physical manifestation of all this stuff. And I mean, I was lucky he lived in a, at, at the end, like a one bedroom apartment compared mm-hmm. to this sprawling mansion, you know, but that the act of like sifting through someone's possessions um, and that this, this hallway was like this endless junk drawer, you know, with, with all these little things that have, have become meaningless now, but they're they're so important to the person. Um, mm-hmm. There's something just re- and and then the spreading mold, you know. Yeah. Just very very apt metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it really resonated with me. Well, there's that moment when Kay Sam comes to talk to Kay, and she is working through this stuff, and she's like, "Please don't touch it. I have a system." So it's even like she is even trying to work through it, and I think that's a, a seed of the "This is my mother's mind is going to be here too," you know? Yeah, I appreciate how the space alternates between getting smaller and more claustrophobic, and that there is this like black mold that is symbolizing like the rot inside of the brain mm-hmm. between that but also getting much larger uh and like you said laura like sh- the space shifts and it becomes this like almost cavernous space and to mm-hmm. me that this idea that like there are one of the things with this illness is these thoughts that are just outside of your reach like you can almost put your finger on them you can almost wrap your hands on your head around them but they remain just out of reach and you struggle to put the coherent thought together or to remember someone's name or to remember this event that happened to you. And this idea that your brain in some ways almost becomes too large. Mm -hmm. Um, I found that like as a a metaphor, like it really did work. And I like that it's this space and not Sam and Kay having to constantly like get away from Edna like it's not Edna that's pursuing them mm-hmm. throughout this whole sequence mm-hmm. it's like yeah. Edna is as trapped in it as they are you know they, they that, and like so that's why I think like you said like the the realization is oh she's not a monster she's just trapped in a monstrous situation as are we and that's an, a, an acceptance that comes from it yeah I think it I think it works yeah. yeah there's occasionally I will talk in my sleep just you know, it doesn't happen very often, or at least I guess I don't know because I'm asleep. But sometimes Corey will ask what I just said and it'll wake me up and I'll still kind of be in the grips of that. And I'm trying to explain to him what I was saying, but I don't know anymore because it was part of this dream. And so that was the sense that I got that just like trying to talk about this dream that I'm not in anymore. And it made perfect sense to me five seconds ago and I can't find it anymore. And he's expecting me to like 
explain and it makes me really angry at him you Mm -hmm. know so when I was watching Edna get angry and like the ring like just like that that feeling of like I can't find this thing like Mike you were saying like it's right there and I just can't grip it and it's so infuriating and frustrating and then and then sad when you can step back and see that happening you know I think yeah maybe this got to me more too because like in the pandemic, I living alone and, you know, time, the boundaries of time have gotten very different. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm having a lot of, and I'm alone all the time. And I feel like I'm, I've never related harder to somebody living like, like a, like an old lady in a, in an apartment that doesn't get her family, doesn't visit her anymore, you know? And, um, but that also that feeling of like, I'm getting, you know, a lot more brain fog and a lot more like, what did I go into this room for? And it's also part of its depression, you know, depression Mm -hmm. has effects on memory. And, but like, I just keep having these like existentially horrifying moments, uh, throughout this, this whole two year endless cycle from hell. Um, so I don't know. I just like, I, I guess it really hit me because I could, it doesn't seem so uh, these things seem very abstract to you when you're young mm-hmm. and I'm not old. I don't think not. I mean, maybe not by, by I'm, I'm approaching middle age, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's like, it's becoming more real. It's becoming more perceptible on the horizon that these kind of things ca- can and might happen to you. So it's very upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and maybe that's a good transition into the final scene because that, I don't think I noticed this. It's not that I didn't notice it, but I don't think I got the weight of it when she sees that little spot of mold on her Mm -hmm. mother's back. I was really struck by the the generational support there, like early in the film when they're talking about like what should she come live with Kay. Kay's like, I really need you to be on my side with this. And I think that's Kay understanding like this is going to be really hard. I'm going to need some kind of support from you. And so I love the visual of her just laying down behind her mother, you know, and then the way that unfolds in her brain of like, oh, I'm going to be where Kay is some point in my life and this is it's a cycle and it's a it's a it's like a natural cycle of life but that doesn't make it any less terrifying and less heartbreaking you know yeah absolutely and I I think it's I like that you saw the support in it and I saw it as this like deeply fatalistic (laughs) negative (laughs) thing there's something about the two of us you know um but but because I saw it as like they're all just laying down in this bed and Mm -hmm. the the mold on her back is like the sign like the first sign of dementia Mm -hmm. you know and that that ergo Sam is going to have it growing on her back one day no matter what she does Mm -hmm. like and that like there is really no escape that's how yeah. my, my brain interpreted it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was partly how I saw it too, but yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I like your, I like your take better than mine. <laughs> um, um, I, I just wanted to mention real quickly the cabin in the woods, because I think that is a really interesting image of this. And I think the line that really stood out for me was when Edna is just kind of offhand, not Edna, Kay is offhand saying he wasn't properly cared for. And I feel like there is so much in that sentence for her, you know, yeah, because she's also like, okay, but what does that mean? Also, this was like maybe 80 years earlier. So like what does, and, and just like the judgment of 
that's somebody who is on the cusp of doing this and doesn't quite understand everything about it, but also knows how important mm-hmm. it is. And I like the the image of her just falling away and how at first it is an old man who we don't even really know. I'm assuming that's the great grandfather, but mm-hmm. it's not really clear. And then it becomes her mother because it is becoming more and more real and it's getting closer and closer. And I just thought it was, you know. And it's, yeah. you know, would be, I think historically accurate. I mean, I think it's safe to say that persons that suffered from this, like were often shuttled away and like he was kept off property and almost seen as like a dirty secret mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, like Edna in the community is now seen as this. You see like the only other uh, persons you see in this movie Besides, like the three, the, the three family members are the neighbor with uh, Down syndrome and his dad, mm-hmm. and even they're like, we don't really go there anymore. After obviously, after his son, kind of like attacked. Like, I mean, like it's a really traumatizing experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you you could go one of two ways, where you're like, okay, if we're gonna go there, don't put yourself in a situation where you could get cornered or locked somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, like, you know what? Like, this is not our responsibility. Like, mm-hmm. she's not a family member. We don't really have any real ties to her. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of left to her own, like, to the degree that she can wander away for days and nobody mm-hmm. would notice at first. Yeah. And that's a really scary thing. It is. And and they are the ones that call Kay, right? Am I, I think so. connecting that? I, so I think I think so. Yeah. Which I think is a reasonable thing to do. Like I hadn't really thought about what their responsibility for Edna would be at that moment, but like I think saying it is totally acceptable to say, nope, this is not me. But I'm gonna call mm-hmm. and just say, Hey, this is happening, but it's not my fight. Because I mean, with a son with Down syndrome, they've got a lot of caregiving that they are also doing too so yeah i think i think it's a completely reasonable (laughs) reaction on their part like they don't owe they don't owe this woman anything but they did enough to be like oh well we haven't seen her around we should probably call the family that's actually like a fairly neighborly thing to do to even know what number to call yeah Uh, it also doesn't seem like they're blaming her really either they're not like she tried to kill my son it's just like this is not a safe place for my son to be anymore yeah no i i didn't feel it was just kind of like oh let's not yeah, let's, let's not. not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's more here than we can really handle. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else we want to mention before we move on? All right. Well, let's mention briefly any other mental health topics. Um, not going to dig into them, but we just like to mention things when we see them. And I actually didn't find anything else no. in this. This really hammers its central theme home. Mm-hmm. over and over again very hard yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes it does um all right well and let's mention any other movies we see dementia represented or any movies we feel the same kind of vibe in um and is there there's one that was hitting um oh there's some episodes of er a lot that i remember watching and mike it what made me think about it was when you were mentioning queer um family members mm-hmm. and i think these episodes were happening before um same-sex marriage was legal and so it was this struggle between a family that was not accepting a loved one versus their partner and they didn't mm-hmm. have the legal right so i think there's i don't know exactly what episodes to really point to well but, you know. if we could add tv to the mix then oh yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go with season five of buffy the vampire slayer where oh. you have glory 
and Dawn is the key, uh, were basically persons that were somehow like off, like were suffering from early grade dementia, could see Dawn, who wasn't quote unquote a real person for what she was. And like the big bad of that season, Glory, like she would literally stick her hands inside persons' brains and suck out like all of their memories or all of their reason or all of their ability to care for themselves. And mm-hmm. persons would have to like they would wander around like very much like Edna in mm. this movie. Yeah. Kind of forgot all that level of detail about that no. season. I was too fixated on remembering Spike and Buffy <laughs> getting it on for the first time. Oh, is that the season? Uh, they, I, I thought that was season six. I well there's like they start trending toward that because yeah. uh he starts like having dreams about her and they say you know they have that we don't need to get in this uh <laughs> I, this is just me i was very fixated on that one mm-hmm. thing because i was a horny teen um <laughs> when that finally finished that series we're gonna have to have a patreon buffy episode i think oh yeah oh god yeah and well with all this stuff with joss whedon right now i'm like i'm feeling doubly traumatized by oh that yeah whole. anyway but uh, uh <laughs> there was right. something oh i was just gonna say this movie got compared a lot to hereditary I think, oh for- yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some clear reasons, but others, I think they're just wildly different movies. Like, I think, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there's the the mother and the, the literal, like this movie could have been called Hereditary and it would have yeah. worked as a title, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think it really should have been called Detritus. <laughs> <laughs> just so we can say it again, right? Well, and there's also The Dark and the Wicked, which is different, a yeah. different theme and very it's somehow darker movie, but there yeah. is this element of caregiving and, you know. Mentioning Hereditary, I think that gets back to the point I was kind of saying earlier in that, like, this movie is really, really heavy, as Hereditary is. Like, Hereditary is, like, a heavy fucking movie. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it manages, like, some great communal watching moments. Mm -hmm. For example, like, that moment with Charlie, where I'm like, wait a minute. That did, mm. That's a dream sequence, right? Like, that didn't just happen. Oh. And then I, one of my favorite movie memories of being in a movie theater is, like, sitting next to some random woman. And at the end of Hereditary, when the mom is, like, up on the wall in the mm-hmm. corner in the shadows, and you don't know she's there at first. Mm-hmm. And when this woman saw her lurking there, she just yelled at the top of her lungs, oh, fuck no. <laughs> and that was, to me, like, it could be really smart and say a lot but at the same time like it didn't make me want to like kind of like i need something less depressing like gummo or you know larry clark's (laughs) kids to watch after this oh yeah i'm not Uh, arguing this movie is bleak and humorless mm, like i'm not gonna argue that point i thought i think they're very that's why i think they're such different movies like Ari Aster just approaches things differently. I think that there are some things they have superficially in common, but when mm-hmm. I, and, and I think that's what I, when I went into this movie, I was expecting something more in the vein of that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's probably why I was a little disappointed upon first watch, but upon the second watch, I was like, oh, this is just doing its own little thing, very yeah. specific thing. And I can appreciate it from that vantage point. Yeah. And that's, I think that's kind of my approach or the, the my experience as well. Yeah. Well, And now it's time for an uplifting moment. 
was going to say, speaking of hereditary, now it's time for an uplifting film. <laughs> this is the most uplifting film. But um, this is where we share any grounding and self-care that's been particularly effective for us recently. Grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through the tough times. And self-care is anything we do to take care of ourselves, anything that makes us feel good or feel better. And to talk about a completely different TV show that I've been obsessed with recently, um, Hulu has Pam and Tommy, which is about <laughs> Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee and like the 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 theft and sale of their sex tape. And I thought I it was going to be the trailer. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I I just kind of I had had it on while, or I was watching that '90s documentary that we were talking about, and they had an episode on Baywatch, and then I kept seeing this trailer pop up, and I was like, okay, I'm going to watch it, and just put it on in the background. And I'm finding it really like I'm really enjoying it. It's one, it's completely disassociated from my life, uh, so it's it doesn't carry any stress for me. Um, but it's really fun. I now have a crush on Sebastian Stan, who is playing Tommy Lee. Um, and it, so it's making Marvel more interesting because we're watching all those movies now, too. Um, but I'm also thinking, because it's, it's got Seth Rogen and uh, Nick Offerman. And then I think the people who are playing Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee, I think they're it's just doing a really good job of humanizing them, but still keeping it fun and still keeping the caricature that they are are or were but also they're like there's a scene where they're dancing to the king and I and it's just really sweet and then there's just this them both kind of or him being like a dick anyways it's I'm really enjoying it it's very stress relieving I was really mad when I found out that it wasn't a movie and I was gonna have to wait for the rest of the season <laughs> so that that's usually my cue that I'm really into something so so mm -hmm. yeah check that out uh <laughs> <laughs> It's you a hard don't have time to share eat. anything if you don't want to. I, I, it's just, you know, I feel sometimes like, you know, I don't have any, sometimes this is what therapy is like too, where it's like, nope, nothing's changed this right, way. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I did finish Archive 81, which had the most bonkers ending. Oh, I know. <laughs> I was like, what? I, can't, I still can't get over. I just want, if any, just if you oh. want to talk about that, Jen, like I, that would be my self-care is just <laughs> like talking about how fucking. Yeah, like, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't watched the remaining oh my, episodes yet oh my god yep. like it's just like i don't even i don't want to say too much yeah but just prepare yourself to be both disappointed and amused by the way that <laughs> that, that that season well, wraps up summed uh, up everybody who's ever dated me so <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and it's really just the very last scene, too. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I don't love the last two episodes in general. I think they start to show their hand a little too much. It's like, okay, don't reveal too much, you know. And also, the mold patterns in that are exactly like the mold in this movie. Oh yeah, if you think that, which mm -hmm. is really bizarre. But uh, yeah, no, the the but the last scene, I was just like, I literally, I have to get away from the mic to do this. I was watching it, and I, I think I screamed. Aah! And like, like it was just like it gave me that level of like what the fuck like, and I just was dying and like the yeah. last shot you know what I, oh my yep, god yep I know what you mean yep <laughs> <laughs> not gonna say yeah that started that started I started like whoo, whoo, I was like hooting and hollering for real you uh -huh. know uh okay sorry Mike <laughs> so I know like I had an unexpected three day work week this week in that. Mm. Like we had a huge snowstorm on Saturday, uh, where we had like thirty inches of snow Jeez. and thirty um, inches. Yeah, uh, my 30? wife's yeah, 
my wife's that's district. like daughter party shit oh I yeah know. it was it was bad and one of the advantages like my wife's um school like they had like a slight delay but i work for a much poorer district so one of the benefits of working for a poor district is they have really shitty ways to take care of the schools <laughs> so we get canceled a lot quicker mm. so yay yeah <laughs> yay so, for structural right. inequity <laughs> so that was an, and i what i did that day was literally sat on the couch under a blanket had my dog on my lap and just watched five hours of curb your enthusiasm which mm. is one of my favorite shows and just watched a bunch of episodes i just never got a chance to watch like i did all of the seinfeld reunion season mm, which i'd mm-hmm. only seen a couple episodes of and just laughed i mean like mm-hmm. literally just i find that i agree with larry david more and more i find he is often correct <laughs> and that people escalate far too quickly when they get angry at him <laughs> and we had another day off on friday because of an anticipated ice storm which again the town i live in which is literally six minutes from my school half day will get you on the bus by 11 and you'll, you know, half a day and we got the day off. Uh-huh. So it was just like I prepared, like I went out, got the groceries and prepared for the family, like a roast chicken dinner with like mm-hmm. roast vegetables and cooked and relaxed. And mm-hmm. I'm going to regret this in mid June when they're out of school and I'm still going in every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. But it was just nice to have like, cause it's, it was like a, it was a hard week. But so it was nice to have that midweek mm-hmm. kind of like or that really short week and then go, OK, two weeks until February break. Like, I mm-hmm. got this. I can make it. So. Yeah. It's interesting to me that like you got 30 inches and that was a three day work week, because if we got 30 inches down here, we would never go yeah. back to school again. There were, and there would be like riots. <laughs> Yeah, Na- not- national. They'd be calling in the national guard. I, and so I was, yeah. I was literally just trying to Google. Like last year, we had a really bad snowfall, but I think it was like twenty four inches mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. I was like, there was one. I think like the uh, in twenty eleven, there was a day where it didn't stop snowing for like three days yeah. and it was mm-hmm. blizzard conditions and it was like similar to that thing that just happened on that expressway where Lakeshore Drive got super backed up mm-hmm. and like people mm-hmm. were stuck there overnight. Yeah, but like I don't even think, but that that it didn't even scrape yeah. 30 inches so that's an yeah. insane yeah. amount and of this, snow I know. it wasn't the norm like it's not the norm that we would get that much in one i mean i went out and plowed like three times like luckily it was not the really heavy duty snow so it was pretty easy to move it mm-hmm. but like i hit the driveway twice on saturday and once sunday morning so that way like i know people that didn't touch anything and like they were screwed i mean unless yeah. you have like an industrial strength snow blower like you're pretty screwed trying to move yeah that you're, much you're snowed in you're yeah. snowed yeah. in <laughs> can, can we now call you mr plow because oh yeah that name again is mr plow which can be taken a lot of ways oh um, <laughs> i mean he does wear the jacket well, what do you bed. mean <laughs> what do you mean mike <laughs> i mean sex Laura. oh i mean oh, like plow. okay oh oh yeah. speaking of i heard anyways <laughs> I heard the most bananas thing about Willem Dafoe the other day. Apparently, he has a huge oh the biggest the biggest dick. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I it's one of the many things I know about Willem Dafoe. No. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I'm not either. Yeah, my friend was like, well, "There's motherfucking Willem Dafoe." There was some quote that was like, "This actor 
Like the, the, there was like a director described it as like disturbingly large or it's something large like that. It's Lars von Trier like, for I, Antichrist. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's just because I can only assume that Lars von Trier cut his own dick off at some point. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, he used to be called Large von Trier and then. Not so much. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Well, you know, once again, the uplifting right. moment has turned into a discussion of dicks. <laughs> and well, that's the sound the sound effect for, sound well, for that episode, yeah. I mean, they do... It is an uplifting they moment. They do get uplifted. That's One right. One can only hope. If you're doing it right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I'll stop. All right. Well, we want to hear from you. Have you ever eaten a scrapbook? What is growing on your walls? And are you sure you've ever seen it? You've seen every room in your house. And what's funny is a little peek behind the scenes. Sometimes I copy paste these from older outlines. And one of the questions in here was, have you ever coughed up hair? Because <laughs> I copied it from, from raw, from raw. Yeah, yeah, but I had forgotten that. I was like, "What?" <laughs> Anyways, so or what's your grounding and self care? What's on your mind? You can answer all these uh, questions and more by following us at Psycho A Pod on all of the socials, and you can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It's a private and moderated place where we can share uh, things we talk about in the episode or just what's going on in your life. And you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to contact us privately. And if you wouldn't mind, we would love it if you could leave us a rate and review. It only takes a minute and it really is one of the best ways you can help others find the pod and it makes us feel good. So thank you to those who have already left us reviews. Um, and our homework question for this week is, is there a family possession or heirloom you will pass down to the next generation? Any kind of jewelry or, and you know, I was obsessed with this candle making thing. Like I found myself really fascinated. So if there's some kind of practice or something that you want to pass down to generations too, we'd love to hear about it. If you've got pictures you'd like to share, I think this could be a really interesting one. And what are we watching next? So we have a comfort horror episode coming up. We are going to be joined by Mary Wild of the Projections podcast. And we are going to be watching Malignant. Yay. yay. I want to say <laughs> Two of I us am. are saying yay. <laughs> I, this, this, you know, we can swoop to whoop here. We can swoop to whoop. As, <laughs> yep. You know, there's one, one for me and one for you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say that, like, I want to thank our guests lately because i feel like they've really been bringing it with their choices <laughs> there have been really a lot of mike centric comfort horror movies there have been. yeah there really have been yeah you know? yeah and i've been enjoying them as well like you know we're gonna get like a stretch where someone's like i want to do good night mummy for a comfort <laughs> horror and if like, i have really? to watch that movie again i'll be very upset <laughs> <laughs> so you glue yourself to the floor and then light your apartment uh... i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry I haven't even seen it. That's why that, I guess that, I can that, joke. That, that last sequence in that movie is extremely upsetting. Yeah. Like, someone will pick like the golden glove, which is like the German oh. Henry portrait of a serial killer. And... Oh, yeah. Awesome. I have heard of that. Yeah, yeah. That's the podcast once watched once never again, if you're interested in mm -hmm. those movies. Yes, yes. They cover those very well. Anyways, uh, so let's let's see. So watch Malignant. But if that's not enough of us for you, Mike, what is going on in the world of Patreon? Yeah, so why don't you become a patron right now? Go to <laughs> patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast. Thank you to Marcus, who just signed up at the Anthony oh, Hopkins hey, level at five bucks a month. 
Thank you, Marcus, for becoming our latest patron. That is where you get all our bonus content. So we do bonus shows, Q&A episodes. Uh, Every tier gets you some bonus content. As you go up in tiers, you get things like our medicine chest, where we give you our recommendations, like what we're watching and listening to. You get things like our commentaries. So next week, we're going to be recording a... Uh, commentary on Scream for our top tier. And if you want to do like a one-time donation of $50, you get to pick a movie uh, and a topic that month. And I think we're going to go through our list because I think uh, March is going to be like a patron month. We're going to do one of the uh, topics on that list. Uh, If you don't want to pick a topic but have a comfort horror movie in mind, You can just suggest a horror movie for us to cover. And all of the persons that donate at that $50 tier get to join us for a segment to talk about why they pick that movie and why they love that movie and how incredible the three of us are, (laughs) which is really the focus of that segment. Yes, there Um, will be an ask kissing question. Yeah, there will be. So what is your favorite thing about Mike? Um, you <laughs> Do you know. think I look like I've lost weight? <laughs> yeah. um, Do you like this outfit on me? <laughs> Sorry. Go to patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast to become a patron of our show today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was a promotional noise. That's right. Um, ding, and ding. the more you know. I don't know. And now I'm just saying sounds. <laughs> Um, which again is what podcasting is. Um, let's so let's wrap up with some plugs. Laura, where can we find you online? You can find me online at uh, Underalls on Twitter. That's U N D E R A L L S. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> much like, much like the mold, the black mold that's inside of your dick and balls. <laughs> It's covering them on the inside and the outside. Why it's like it's spreading into a full bear boxer briefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's at underalls U N D E R L. And you got you got to peel it off. You got to get your one of your family members to peel them off. Uh, right. That's that's where I'm, you can find me. I apologize for everything <laughs> I just said. I improvise these if you cannot tell. And you occasionally find me on Losers Club and Halloweenies podcasts as well. Uh, Mike, hey. You know, recently, like two kids I counsel, their brothers, they messaged me and said, we found your podcast. And I'm not sure. They're like 11 and 12, respectively. And I'm like, you're far too young to be listening to any of my shows. (laughs) You got to tell their, no, I would say like get their parents to make sure they don't listen to it, but then they'll definitely listen to all of it. And they'll Mm. be very educated and empathetic by the end of it. But they'll also know way too much about your Mm. like sexual proclivities. And (laughs) we can't have that. We cannot have that. I will not be allowed to work around kids, which, uh, you know, anyway, uh, you can find this, me. This is your out, Mike. Right. This is my out. You can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter, over on Letterboxd at Mike Chump Change. And you can find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, everywhere you get podcasts. Uh, that's where we cover horror movie franchises. Pretty much I'm like this. All episode. Um, (laughs) Pretty much this is what you get. And I just recently did a guest spot on Disenfranchised, uh, which is a movie. It's like the polar opposite of what we do. And that they do like one and dones where Mm. we did the my I'm like their uh, Valentine's Day guy. 
hmm. where we did My Bloody Valentine, uh, the 20, 2009 reboot, hmm. uh, and just talked the about The 3D that. one? The 3D one, yeah. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. You can That uh, should be up by the time you hear this. Sweet. And you can find me at Jim Ferratu on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find me co-hosting the Losers Club podcast. We're going to be talking about 10, um, our favorite Stephen King couples. And so lots of fun Valentine's Day stuff coming up. And I think our next book that I need to get started on is Des- not Desperation, um, Dreamcatcher, another D-, D book, but not that kind of D book. Anyways. Um, <laughs> for more of that humor you can also find me coasting the white ladies in crisis podcast we just did the perfection which is a movie that i adore and it was my pick next time so we're going to be talking about the hand that rocks the cradle which i'm super oh yes about. i love that movie <laughs> i do too i'm so excited so check me out there and also writing and uh lots of stuff also and i share it so follow me and that's where it is so that's me and that's our episode on relic listeners thank you so much for joining us thank you i think this was a bit of a heavy conversation but it's the kind of thing i feel like we need to talk about stuff like this you know because it helps us not yeah. be so afraid of it and so make sure you're taking care of yourselves and taking care of each other especially since we talked so much about caregiving in this episode and with that let's sign off we came here to chew bubblegum and take care not bubble cum. We came here to chew. <laughs> I don't know why. Leave, I don't know what happened. Leave that in. <laughs> we came here to chew bubble gum and take oh. care of ourselves. <laughs> and, and we're, we're all, all out, out of, of bubble, bubble gum. gum. I don't say bubble cum. Don't say- <laughs>